This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. What's going on, friends? It is Eddie Trunk, and this indeed is the Eddie Trunk Podcast, and you know the deal. It is new every single Thursday, podcastone.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing great reviews. Uh, Thank you for all of your support. Recently voted in the top 30 podcasts out there. Uh, I got to find that publication. I tweeted the link to it, but that was really cool to see uh, us popping up on a chart like that. So thank you. I don't don't have the publication in front of me, but we had a real nice um, showing in a top 30 podcast. Awesome. So hope you guys are doing well and you know the deal. Interviews brought to you this week, as always, by my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation. Hear it live Monday through Friday. 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Channel 106 Volume. Nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern and anytime you want on the SiriusXM app. That's where the interviews you hear on this podcast originate from. And you get a tiny little taste of what I do on a daily basis here on the podcast. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, be sure to join me each and every day for rock talk and interviews and be involved in the show by getting on board with me at SiriusXM. You also have uh, the syndicated weekly show, Eddie Trunk Rocks, on about 30 radio stations. Thank you to all my affiliates there. You got the Monday show on Hair Nation on Sirius XM. So a lot of things to check out. Uh, check out my TV series, Trunk Fest. I wanted to mention that again. I did a TV series for Access TV covering music festivals and events. And now more than ever, we are missing those events given the pandemic. A lot of fun uh, show to do for whatever reason. Access TV does not run it that much, if ever, on the actual channel. However, they did just put it on their app and on their website, which is axs.tv. Check it out. There are 17 total episodes. Again, the show is called Trunk Fest. I think you will enjoy it. 
and uh, bring you back to a time when you actually could be in big crowds with a lot of people watching festivals, which hopefully will happen again sometime soon. At Eddie Trunk, Twitter and Instagram, where I am most active. There's also a fan page on Facebook. EddieTrunk.com is the website, music news, and more you will find there. This week, an interview that happened a couple weeks ago, as usual, on Trunk Nation, on volume, and it is uh, an interview I was extremely excited to do and my audience was extremely into, and that is a conversation with Brian Adams. Yes, that Brian Adams, Summer of 69, Run to You, Cuts Like a Knife. I don't care what genre of rock you're into, hard to deny that Brian Adams has just an insane amount of fantastic rock songs. And he was nice enough to give me over an hour of his time to talk about his career recently. And I've always said the best interviews for me are the ones where there are no agenda and the person is just cool to hang out and talk and shoot the shit. And that is exactly what Brian Adams did. He was in the middle of finalizing a new album at a studio in Canada, and he got on the phone with me, and we talked for over an hour. I could have talked to him for three hours. He was great. And we got into all sorts of great stuff, some really interesting stories in this interview. The fact that Run to You was originally for Blue Oyster Cult, uh, the story on how he ended up writing songs with Kiss for Creatures of the Night, which uh, astonishingly, astonishingly, as you're about to hear, Brian Adams has never seen Kiss live. And he had no idea that one of the songs he co-wrote has been a, a live staple for 40 years. There's just great stuff in here. I think you're going to love it. And I thank Brian Adams for the time. And I thank my friend Paul Sedotti who was the conduit for making this happen. Uh, he was the one who put us in touch, and I greatly appreciate that. Paul's a great dude. He plays guitar in Taylor Swift's band, has for a very long time, and he hooked Brian Adams and I up, and I'm grateful for that. So let's get to it, because it's a pretty good long interview. I think you're going to really love it, and let's get it rolling right now. Brian Adams on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, are you paying out of your own pocket for gear you need to do your job? All kinds of departments across the nation, all those good folks, police, fire, EMS, medical workers on the front lines, even military units. Uh, you deal with constrained budgets, outdated gear, but there's still a job to do and you need the right gear to do it. Hunting for military first responder discounts has historically required going from one website to another creating multiple account logins just to make purchases and jumping through various hoops to verify your service. Don't you wish there was just one, one place where you could visit that had a carefully crafted selection of deals for military first responders in one spot? Well, folks, we got that answer for you because it is the place to go. And that place is no doubt about it. What I'm about to tell you about, and that is GovX.com. GovX works directly with brands to negotiate the best price possible because you deserve the gear you need at the prices you've earned 
Plus, you can trust that the gear you're ordering is 100% authentic direct from the manufacturers. Big general retailers, they don't care about you and your sacrifices as long as you're clicking on the add to the cart button. Not GovX. Got a huge collection of gear and apparel from popular brands all in one convenient location. GovX honors your service and gives back to your communities. So if you're an American of service, a current or former member of the military, firefighters, frontline medical or law enforcement communities, or the emergency medical communities, join GovX for free and enjoy a community that honors and gives back to patriots like you. And if you got a military or a first responder background, you visit GovX.com, you sign up for free for instant access to tons of deals and a community that honors your service. And check this out. Use the promo code TRUNK15, T-R-U-N-K-15, you get $15 off your first order of $50 or more. That's an amazing deal. Just use my code TRUNK, T-R-U-N-K-15, govx.com, G-O-V-X dot com. Deep within the bowels of hell, the devil scrolls through Instagram and TikTok looking for fresh souls to enslave. Yo, yo, what's up, my jits? It's your boy, Jaden Extra, here with some... Who are these people? Easy pickings for possession, your lord darkness. <sighs> they are truly unbearable. I believe they refer to themselves as influencers. Do you have anyone particular in mind? Hmm. Money, money, money! Him! <laughs> my numbers are way down, babe. I need to change it up. Didn't you see that Halloween video Machine Gun Kelly made with the devil? He's like huge now, all because he sold his soul to the devil. This could be my big chance. I'm not having this conversation. It's wrong, Jaden, and it's evil. I'm done with the drama, Fem. Just leave, all right? And you're not coming to Kava with me. I hate you! Hey, y'all, it's Fem. What's up, it's Jaden. What's up? It's Carly Hansen. Hey, y'all. It's Oliver Tree. Yo, what's going on? It's Ian Dior, and we all know Valentine's Day is the most romantic time of the year. Whatever. My friends and I are about to turn the whole holiday upside down in our new scripted holiday series, Valentine's Day in Hell. Are you familiar with the work of Anton LaVey? Is he on TikTok? No, he's not on TikTok. You dumbass. Anton Zandor LaVey. He's the dude who founded the Church of Satan. I'm starting to fear that maybe you're messing with powers that are far beyond your cognitive comprehension, Jaden. I got it, bro. I've seen a version of this movie 20 times. You're like the badass demon hunter, and I'm just some little jit who is messing around with things he doesn't understand. And in the end, I'll get all messed up, and it will be up to you to, like, save me. First, we spent Halloween in Hell. Now, you're invited to be a part of our next musical podcast from our In Hell series. This time around, the devil is playing games with all of our hearts, trying to ruin our Valentine's Day plans by dragging us down to the fiery inferno in the deepest depths of hell. Demons. Place a hood over Jaden and escort him to hell. This is your fault, Oliver. 
I know Jaden came to you for help. Satan has picked Jaden for some reason. Now it's up to us to make this right. So who's with me? I'm with you, Oliver. I'll go. What about you, sad girl? I'll kill some people if that's what you want. Then that leaves you, Clappy. Count me in, Oliver. Besides, I ain't got nothing to do. Might as well spend my Valentine's Day in hell. In each episode, you're going to hear new original music from artists like Ian Dior, Jaden, Carly Hansen, and me, Fam. Subscribe to the Valentine's Day in Hell podcast for full episodes, bonus material, and original music. This February, check out Valentine's Day in Hell. Brought to you by Audio Up and Podcast One. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, folks, let's get to it. It's a great one. First time I ever interviewed Brian Adams for radio. 15 years ago, I did a TV interview with him. This was the first time we had a chance to talk on radio. I think you're going to enjoy it. I know I did, and I know my audience did when this aired live on the radio. So without further ado, here is Brian Adams on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Brian, thank you so much for the time. How are you today? Hi, Eddie. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So you're joining us from uh, a studio in Canada. Let's start now. What are you working on at the moment? I'm, I'm in Vancouver, and I'm working on uh, album number 15. How's it been going? How far into it are you? I'm starting to mix now. Oh, is that right? Did you? Do, I imagine you did a lot of the work in uh, you know during the pandemic. Was is this a quarantine yeah. record per se? Yeah, it's a lockdown record. And uh, how did it go as far as writing? How did you find the experience making a record in in the world we're in today? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not really been that much different. Um, the past decade, really, a lot of songs were written sort of trans-internet. Uh, you know, people on one side of the world, me on the other side of the world, collaborating or, you know, passing ideas back and forth. I mean, I've been using my laptop as as a writing tool for as long as I can remember now. It's been, you know, it's an invaluable thing to have. <laughs> um, so, I mean, some songs on this record uh, were started kind of as a musical thing, and then uh, I would dig into my laptop and try and find old lyrical ideas I had that I hadn't used, and... So it's kind of uh, it's yeah it, I use it as a reference and um and sort of a library a library of ideas and it's coming together great it's it's really it's really a good record um and uh I just uh, I just played it with my record company and they're all dancing up and down so yeah we'll see how it goes Can you uh can you give us any further insights about what I mean who who did you work with on the record is it your usual band did you write with Jim Valance or any other writers, or what was the process like in terms of uh, creatively, like where, where are you headed with this one? Yeah, um, it's it's the usual cast of characters, except the only difference is that I'm playing all the instruments because I couldn't put my band together, so I'm playing guitar, bass, and drums and keyboards. First time you've done that, Brian? No, um, but it's uh, it's the first time I've done a whole album like that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been done before, but that always fascinates me. I think McCartney actually, Paul McCartney did that on his most recent record, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, what, and, I, but he's famous for doing that from going back to Ram. I mean, right. you know, he, he, <laughs> he's done a lot of it in the past. But this, but this is the first time I've done sort of uh, all the instruments, but the drumming was the, was the, most, uh, was the most challenging <laughs> of all of them. Um, but I got it. I got it. When do you hope to have it out? Well, uh, the idea is that we'll probably release a song sometime in the spring, and then we'll probably put the album out in September. And either there'll be a track now, and then a track in the summer, and then the album, or there'll just be one track and then the album, something like that. You have, uh, looking at your website, you have dates announced in the UK for June, July. Are you optimistic you're going to be able to play those dates? Well, I have to remain optimistic because they're there. Um, however, it, you know, all I have to do is pick up the news and see what's going on to, to be a little bit pessimistic about it because I can't imagine that uh, governments are going to allow people to congregate en masse like that. At the moment, I just, you know, it's just too early to tell. I think once April and May roll around, I'll have a better idea. So perhaps we can have a chat then. Yeah, yeah. Well, going back to songwriting, Brian, I mean, I I, I mean, I love your songs. And, and I think the stuff you've Thanks, done. Uh, it's really I mean, nice this, you, Thank you. Uh, I mean, I do. I mean, and you know what's interesting? I mean, my core and my history in the business for decades has been predominantly more leaning towards the hard rock side of things. But I, I've always loved your records. And even today, other musicians that are friends of mine and major bands and what have you, man, we're so excited. Brian's on your, your music has touched a wide range of people um, in, in a wide range of, of rock, you know, people that love harder rock or more melodic stuff or pop or what have you. Was that always the, the mission statement when you started to cast a wide net of, of appeal with the type of music you made? Well, you have to remember, I'm uh, sort of a, I'm a product of the 60s and 70s. And uh, when I used to go to concerts in the 70s, when I was old enough, uh, the artist that I, the, the first artist I saw was David Bowie in 1974 on his Diamond Dogs tour, and and then then I saw Zeppelin and um, and then I saw Elton John for Yellow Brick Road, and a lot of these artists, you know, would could could really rock out, and but the other thing that was always interesting about them was they had a, you know, even Zeppelin as hard as they rocked would have moments where they would bring it right down and be acoustic and and those moments were the things that you know I always found really compelling and and added a lot of diversity to to their shows you know and so I, I kind of molded my myself without you know subconsciously thinking that it's nice to be able to have both sides of the coin and and not and not just uh you know blaze out the whole time because you know my voice kind of suits you know having both both styles anyway so so that's kind of what i was thinking and and also i was i was writing i was writing songs that could could you know be interpreted both ways but you have to remember when i first started i, I had no idea that i would ever 
succeed. And uh, so I was just writing songs and hoping that something would happen one day. And and hopefully I'd be able to pay my rent. <laughs> no, Did you... I mean, you, you, you laugh, but that's that was... Well, yeah. No, I'm sure was, it was. I, I, all I cared about was being able to be able to pay my rent and my brother and I were living together and I you know I had started to do sessions when I was about 16 uh doing you know I I'd, I'd show up for anything basically and uh one day I I got a job doing something for some I can't remember what it was but a check came home one day through the mailbox it was 500 bucks and uh I just thought some. I thought it was a mistake. I I <laughs> I, I thought they were they'd added you know another zero when they shouldn't have. And I went to my brother. I said, "Look, someone sent me five hundred bucks." He says, "Good, you can pay the rent, and we can have dinner." And uh, <laughs> and so that's 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 when music started to make sense, you know. Um, but you know, do you remember what a, it was for, Brian? Do you remember specifically what the five hundred was I, for? I, I, well, I had done so many things um, at that point that it could have been any number of things. It could have been something for a shopping mall, or it could have been a, a you know beer commercial, or but whatever it was, I was really grateful. And um, yeah, so as a young songwriter, you know, the the mission was really just to see if I could get my songs out there somehow. You know, m- maybe as Maybe as me, or maybe as just as a songwriter, I could, you know, gun for hire. Well, initially you started, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you had a band initially. You joined a band called Sweeney Todd, and a caller to my show earlier in the week brought this up to me who listens in Canada, and he said to me that I guess you actually replaced Nick Gilder in that band, correct? Yeah, no, actually, I didn't replace Nick, and Nick, I replaced another guy called Clark. I was like the third or fourth singer they had. But you know, I was I was doing anything to pay the rent. <laughs> you understand? So it didn't matter um, what what, uh, what 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 the gig was. And I I had a few different bands during those days. But I realized actually that um, the club working the club circuit uh, at nighttime uh, was going nowhere. And so uh, at the age of sixteen, I stopped doing it because I joined that band when I was fifteen, and uh, then I joined another band. But none of none of it uh, was 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 helping the, the rent, so I had to find another way. What was the scene like, Brian? Then in the area of Canada, you were working. Was there was there an active scene for rock music? Was it was yeah. it a, a fertile scene in the clubs? Big time, yeah. I mean, back then there was a club everywhere. You know, you could you could literally spend uh, a whole year just sort of rotating around the city, and. It was a very good time. There was lots of great musicians and there were lots of good bands. And that's how I met Keith, my guitar player. I was in one band and he was in another band. And, you know, Keith was the sort of the god of, 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 of the club circuit rock guitar players. And, you know, if you had Keith in your band, you were guaranteed that you'd have all the girls come to your show. Because <laughs> he was, you know, such a super good looking guy. And, I remember one day walking down the street. I was in Toronto, and uh, I saw him. I said, "Hey, Keith." And he goes, "Hey, Brian, how you doing?" I said, "Good, man. Let's, 
you want to go for a coffee? Oh, yeah, okay, but you have to remember musicians I mean rival bands, you know, never really fraternized that much. It was always like, uh, you know, it's that guy. But we got we got uh, we got on right away and then so I was sixteen when I met him and when I was twenty I called him up again and I said, Hey, look, I'm gonna put a band together and I've got a record deal. Do you wanna come and have a listen and maybe we can put something together? He went, Yeah, sure. So around eighty one we uh, started touring together and uh we were touring ever since then until until COVID hit. Do you um Talking about your songwriting, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated as a fan by great songwriters because, um, you know, I've often said I'm not a musician, but I have a great appreciation for musicians and people who can play instruments so well. But to me, there's there's a lot of people like that. There's less people who can consistently create and churn out great songs like you've done uh, for decades. When did you first know, Brian, that you could write songs and that you had a confidence writing songs? And how did the partnership with, with a guy who co-wrote many of these songs with you, Jim Valance, how did that form? Was that right out of the gate? Well, I didn't really know uh, until I started working with Jim. I mean, I had a lot of ideas. Most of them were crap. But uh, when I when I ran into Jim, Jim again was in a rival band in the club scene. They'd done they'd, they'd they'd released an album, so they were sort of getting out, breaking out of the club scene. They were starting to do really well, and um, uh, we we bumped into each other at the record store. Uh, no, it was a music store actually, um, with selling musical instruments, and uh, we got to talking, and and then a few days later we we met met up and but the in- interesting thing was about about meeting him and I, and I don't know if this is something that other people have experienced but I knew right away that I had I don't know there was something in- instinctive I remember leaving the store and going yeah you know this is going to be good and well, the first day we sat down to 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 talk about music we wrote a song together and yeah, so that it's a long, long partnership of of musical ideas back and forth, and it was it was it was a really it was it was interesting to watch uh, how if I look back now and seeing how how we developed and how ideas developed and how how even some of those songs you know stand up today, which is great and. Yeah, so I don't know. Songwriting is a very songwriting is a mystery. It's, it's a it's a it's it's a it's an intangible thing. You know, how does how do you put together a song? Because you know the, the the adage is that you know I, it's it's easy to write a song. It's just hard to write a good song. And how does it work between you and him exactly? Lyrics versus music? Is it whatever, whoever comes in with something? I mean, how how yeah. is the relationship changed? And do you have some? Are you more the music or lyrics guy, or he, or it's just different every song? It really depends on the song. Um, we're both pretty good musically, and I I'm pretty good with sort of titles and 
choruses and he's good with lyrics and melody. I mean, I think the soup, you know, wh- whatever we need to do to get the, to get the ingredients, we some one of us will pull it out, you know. Um most recently when we were working uh, I put together a, a hits package called Ultimate, the Ultimate Collection, right? And uh, uh so I wrote a song called Ultimate Love. <laughs> And I remember sitting with Jim, and we were in a hotel in Toronto. I said, "Man, come on! I, we got we got one more day before we I can finish the song, and then and then I then it's gonna miss the deadline. So come on, let's do it because we've been putting it off for weeks." And uh, okay, so we sat down and we and we put it together. But sometimes uh, I, I gotta say, I think the deadline thing is one of the biggest inspirations for getting songs finished. Give me a deadline and give him a deadline and we'll come up with something. Mm. Yeah. I could see how you could, uh, you, you know, otherwise you could, you could meddle with it forever. Right. If you well, don't you can just procrastinate, you, you, know. you know, yeah. Are you the kind of guy that is always writing or are you the kind of guy that I'm going into writing mode? Don't bother me for a month. Uh, are things always coming to you? Are you reaching for the iPhone and recording voice memos constantly? Or is it something you really have to focus on? Uh, both. I mean, uh, the other day I was just walking around and I suddenly thought of an idea. So I went and put it down and, um, and then that will sit there, you know, idly on my computer until I actually lock myself away and finish it. So it's not, it's it's kind of both, both things that you've just said. So, you know, sometimes ideas just come to you and, and other times you've got to sit down and work at it. Either way, it's work. I mean, songwriting, there's never been a, ch- never been a moment where I've just sort of gone and just blurted it all out. It has to come. They have to, there has to be a germ of something somewhere, whether it's a lyric or whether it's a uh, guitar hook uh, or it's a title. Yeah, so something something has to sort of kick it off, and then that gets you inspired to get get the rest of it done. Of of the huge hits that you've had so far in your career. Which one was the most surprising that it became a hit? Which one was the song you wrote and recorded and it became a single and you never envisioned it to turn into what it turned into? Well, uh, the first song that comes to mind is Run To You um, because uh, that had been recorded. Uh, we we had written a song originally for, for Bloister Cult and uh my friend uh, Bruce Fairburn was producing the band and asked me to write a song for them so we wrote this song and but we really took the demo in the in the wrong direction and you know the band didn't like it and i ended up not liking it and then when it came time to recording uh the album reckless uh i can remember it was like the end of the session and uh Clear Mountain, who was working with me on the record, said to me, "You know, we need one more song. You got anything else?" And I was like, "Well, oh, I got this song. You know, we could maybe try it." So I, I taught the band the song, and then we did a take of it. And I turned around to look into the control room, and everybody was standing up. I mean, the engineers, the the uh, the, um, the tape tape engineer, the assistant, everybody was sort of stood up, and I was like. And so the song finished. So 
what'd you think? He goes, you got to come and listen to this. And so I went in and he was just listen. I was like, wow, it's a lot, it's a lot better than I thought it was. <laughs> but yeah, again, I never thought the song would be would be the, would be this kickoff single off the record, and it was. And, and again, another song that sort of just sort of stood the test of time. It's still it's still a great one. You know, when you but, talk about, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Were you going to say something else on it? No, I'm just going to say you got to be careful what you do in your demos. <laughs> Yeah right. I mean, so Blue Oyster Cult never recorded it. They they no. they passed on it. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. They would actually record. They actually recorded a song probably around that same time or just after by Aldo Nova. So they were kind of mining Canadian songwriters. I think at that time it seems like. Well, I wonder whether that was because of Fairburn. You know, I I don't know because Fairburn was producing them. Maybe he he reached out to a lot of people he knew. Yeah. Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. I don't know. Was um was was summer of '69 when you recorded it? Did you have any feeling it was going to turn into this timeless anthem that it has? Um, no, but I I knew that it was a special one, and um, I drove everybody insane uh, trying to make make the record because we recorded the demo and it was okay, and then took it to the band and you know my my litmus test for demos was. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here's here's the structure uh, of a song, and uh, when we take it to the band, it has to take it to the next level. It has to be better than the demo. If it's not better than the demo, then we haven't done it done it justice. And so, uh, it still wasn't great. And for me, what it was was that the, the, the drums needed to be different. And so I went back and we did another demo. And by this time, the session had sort of closed down. Everyone had gone home. And I'd gone out to a club, and I saw a guy playing in a punk ska band. And uh, he was a young drummer. And uh, at the end of his gig, I said, "Hey, you know, uh, what are you doing tomorrow?" And he said, "I don't know why." Because would you want? I said, "Would you come into the studio and just try some drums on a song for me?" He said, "Sure, I would." So he came in. He'd never been in the studio before, and he's the drummer on Summer '69. His name is Pat Stewart. And uh, he uh, he took the song. He we took the energy of the track with us in the room to the next level, and that's what it needed. It needed an, it needed an explosive performance. Um, you know, my reference for it was always the Who. You know, like it, you needed it needed to have it needed to have the energy of something that would a compelling rock track like that like something that off who's next or something which is my 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 one of my favorite rock albums of all time mm. well i mean it's uh <laughs> it's it's that that song in particular from that record in particular i mean it's just uh, taken on a life of its own it's amazing uh the, the anthem it's become it's it's truly remarkable and you've got an embarrassment of riches like that with your catalog which is just Amazing, and I want to I want to talk about so much more of it if you have time for me. But I am sure. coming up on a commercial break, so are you cool hanging through a break and and doing some more with me? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Brian. So let's remind everybody: Brian Adams joining us now live from a studio in Canada where he is working on his next record, which will be coming. Uh, sounds like kind of soon. He said he's mixing it, so looking forward to that. The latest record <laughs> is Shine a Light, and. Uh, 
you know, we want to, uh, there, I want to talk to you about uh, some of the other records you've made. And I want to talk to you about the beginning of your career as well, because I think the arc that you've had is, is remarkable and something that I don't know if artists have the ability to do to develop the way uh, your career was able to develop. We'll be right back with more from Brian Adams on this week's podcast. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, folks, let me tell you something. We got a new year here in this new year of 2021, and everybody's got some sort of New Year's resolution, you know, some sort of new activity, new hobby. Maybe you've uh, vowed to get in shape, get to the gym, whatever the case may be. And whatever your plans are and your New Year's resolutions are, you can make them even better if you have amazing audio and amazing earbuds. And if you want some amazing earbuds, well, I'm holding some right in my hand. They are from Raycon. I've got the E25s. They are awesome. And it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever you're doing, if you're following directions in the kitchen, if you're uh, trying to listen to an audio book or something like that, get the Raycons. Great sound, accessible to everyone. Wireless earbuds, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. And guess what? If you think having white stems dangling out of your ears looks silly, well, that's something you don't have to worry about with the Raycons because they come in a range of stylish colors. And they're always comfortable, which is the number one thing. You want them to be comfortable because otherwise you don't use them. They've got that great in-ear fit and they've got a more discreet look. And they don't just look great. Raycons perform wherever you take them with up to six hours of playtime, water and sweat resistant construction, Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. I'm telling you what, these Raycons are really incredible. You got to check it out. You got to get a pair. Raycon is offering 15% off all of their products for my listeners, for listeners here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Here's all you got to do to get that deal. You go to buyraycon.com slash trunk, T-R-U-N-K. That's buyraycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash trunk. That's it. Go there, order anything. You'll get 15% off the entire Raycon order. Feel free to grab a pair of these headphones and maybe even a spare set. Anything there. 15% off because you're a listener to the Eddie Trunk podcast. That is 15% off. You just go to buyraycon.com slash trunk, T-R-U-N-K. Again, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash T-R-U-N-K. Buyraycon.com slash trunk. Hey y'all, it's them. It's Jaden. It's Carly Hansen. It's Oliver Tree. What's going on? It's Ian Dior, and we all know Valentine's Day is the most romantic time of the year. Whatever. My friends and I are about to turn the whole holiday upside down in our new scripted holiday series, Valentine's Day in Hell. First we spent Halloween in hell. Now you're invited to be a part of the next musical podcast from our In Hell series. This time around, the devil is playing games with all of our hearts, trying to ruin our Valentine's Day plans by dragging us down to the depths of hell. In each episode, you're going to hear new original music from artists like Ian Dior, Jaden, Carly Hansen, 
and me, Fat. Tune into the Valentine's Day in Hell comedy horror musical podcast. Subscribe for full episodes, bonus material, and original music. This February, check out Valentine's Day in Hell. Brought to you by Audio Up and Podcast One. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk here. Let's get back to more of my conversation with Brian Adams. Lonely Nights, which is from your second album, You Want It, You Got It, which was the first song I ever heard from you here in the U.S. I was working in a record store at the time, and that record came out, and and I loved the song. And uh, I think about your arc, and what I mean by that is first record, didn't really do too much. Second record, You Want It, You Got It. Lonely Nights gets some play, gets the ball rolling. Cuts like a knife, takes you to a whole nother level, reckless, things just blow up. So it was like a four-album arc to to really ascend to the heights, if you will. I wonder today, I mean, I know the music industry today is radically different than it was 40 years ago, but um, talk about that experience for you. Did you get constant encouragement from the label? Were they happy with the growth at the time? Did you feel pressure to deliver more hits as, as things went on? Actually, no. If if there was any pressure, uh, it was all self-imposed pressure. And uh, also at the time, uh, we're talking about really early 80s here. Uh, and I'd, I'd gone to New York City to meet this engineer called Bob Clearmountain. And, and we got together, we made this record. We did it all. We recorded and mixed it in two weeks because there was no money, no time, and uh, da-da-da. And got it together, and then it was just, but how do we make this work? And so I ended up going on on tour, and this gets back to my conversation earlier about Keith and getting him on guitar and us going out on tour together. And we just basically did anything, any gig, any time, just fill it up so we were doing things like noon hour at uh <laughs> noon hour at a radio station uh supporting the kinks at seven thirty, and then going off and doing a club gig that night so in some t- some days we were doing three shows a day and it was all based on the success of and the, the initial radio play of the song you just played lonely nights and Sort of moving that, trying to move that along, and and just building momentum. And I guess that's the word that comes to mind when I think about those times, because you could actually feel the momentum. And when Jim and I would get together to write songs again, we, I was always thinking how what what what's missing from you know the, the set to make this more exciting. And so I was trying to to design songs that would be exciting to perform and and messages that would be exciting to sing and so my days so would evolve around you know that 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 thought process and and well i mean that gives you a little bit of insight there eddie well you know you talk about playing with different people and jumping off and doing all these various shows in any way shape or form there's something to this day, it kills me that I wasn't there, but I'm from the New York, New Jersey area, and my friends all went 
to see you around that time in New York City playing at a club called The Bottom Line. Right. And we are all big rock fans, and we and, and my friends went to see you. And, you know, I was a kid at the time. I mean, I was, I don't know if I was 16, 17, if, if that. And my parents were not letting me go into New York City to see you. And I remember my friends calling quite me. Right. Because <laughs> New, New York wasn't that safe back then. Right. And my, my parent, my friends calling me from the payphone at the bottom line at your concert. And they're like, yeah, we're here to see this new guy, Brian Adams, but you can't believe who's in the audience. We're sitting next to Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley and Mick Jagger's in the corner and all this. So that was a pretty pivotal night. And it kills me because I should have been there and I wasn't. But that was almost like a, a coming out party for you in the New York scene at the time with all these musicians coming to see you. Was was that a, a, a an eventful gig that you remember? It was. Yeah, it was. A, it was a great gig. Um, and the club doesn't even exist any longer, you know. And I, I think it was a radio concert too. It might have been a live broadcast at the time on local radio, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, I don't, I don't remember. I, yeah, I, I, I think it, it's possible, but I, I don't, I don't remember. But being that young, that early in your career, having these major artists coming out to see you had to feel pretty good and reassuring that you were on the right on the right track at that point i would think well it's just good i didn't know about it until afterwards <laughs> the nerves would have gotten to you right oh yeah no i would have been i would have been i wouldn't have been very yeah <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me how um i have a lot of kiss fans in my audience i grew up one as well and you have you and Jim have two co-writes on what's considered to be one of the, even though it was not commercially successful, one of the greatest uh, Kiss records, Creatures of the Night, War Machine, and a song called Rock and Roll Hell. War Machine, to this day, a staple in their live set. How did it come to be that you had songs on a ver maybe the most heavy metal of Kiss records? It's just songs that, um, I, I, hear, I think what happened was they had uh, recorded Rock and Roll Hell, and asked me to come down. You'd have to get Gene's version of this, but I mean, uh, asked me to come down and meet with them and maybe help out on some other songs. And so I thought, okay. So I went down to Los Angeles, and Gene had a Gene had a guitar riff, and but he didn't have a song. And uh, I thought it was a pretty cool guitar riff, and I. I didn't finish the idea when I was in LA, but I took it back to Vancouver and started working on it and sat down with Jim and we came up with the war machine. I thought it'd be, I thought it would be, a, uh, again, I was always thinking about the live context of things and how, how that, and, and that's interesting. You should, you should tell me that that song is still on their live show because that's exactly what I was thinking that you could make this, a really exciting song um based on you know the, the lyrical content and um yeah they recorded that and yeah so i mean i think that's 1981 so i would have been a broke songwriter and really grateful for the opportunity and and to, to this day still very grateful for the opportunity 
Yeah, well, it would have been 81 maybe when you wrote it, but 82 is actually when it, it would have come out. But that's really fascinating that you say that because uh, War Machine has probably been in the KISS live set since it was originally recorded for almost 40 years. To this day, it still is. And it's very much a signature live song that a lot of their effects and such are built around. So that's amazing that you're saying you wrote it with that in mind. And that's exactly how it still connects 40 years later. Wow. I've never seen them live. So, I mean, I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear it worked out. <laughs> and what were the origins of Rock and Roll Hell? Was that something that had been recorded already and that they that you had written for someone else? Yeah, it was originally uh originally recorded um I think for Batman Turner Overdrive and and then just thought it'd be a great song for them. So when we suggested it, um yeah, it was just let's just see if this this flies and they liked it. So that yeah, it did have a tiny bit of a life beforehand. And then tying but, in but, but, but the KISS version is by far the best. And then tying in the bringing the KISS thing full circle, on Cuts Like a Knife, uh, there's a track called Don't Leave Me Lonely, and their late drummer, Eric Carr, was a dear friend of mine. I, I miss him to this day. He has a co-write on your record on that song. What's the story there? Uh, I think Eric Eric uh, had brought an idea to me, um, and, I, and I think it was just like a, I guess a drum guitar, or it may have just been a drum thing, and uh, I just turned it into a song and gave him credit on it. I love that track too. I I, I love the that entire record. Yeah, I when, mean, he he was a, he was a sweetheart, and it's really a shame he's gone. Yeah, and it's thirty years already, which is really even more remarkable. Uh, but can you uh, believe it? Yeah. A sweetheart of a guy and a very talented guy could sing and play other instruments and and, and did right. some writing as well. And it's uh, I, I know you know having known Eric very well, he was very proud of that. He was very fr- proud of the fact that you had given him credit on that song and that he had a song on one of your records. Yeah, and and I think that he when I think the idea was that you know I I wrote the song with uh, with Jim again and Eric, but that it was it was proposed as as a uh, Kiss song. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, I guess they didn't do it, so that I'll do it. Of songs that you've written for other people, Brian, or people who have covered songs for you, I mean, I know Loverboy's in there. There's a bunch of artists over the years that have you've either written for or they've covered your material. Anything stand out to you? Are there any that, that really uh, you thought they really nailed it, that really captured the essence of what you were Clearly, War Machine's one of them we just found out, but are there any others? Well, I always liked what Joe Cocker did with my songs, and uh, and Bonnie Raitt as well. And, uh, I mean, I, I have to be honest, I mean, anytime anyone recorded one of my songs, I was really, really quite touched and, and uh, was always happy to hear how someone else would interpret it, you know, and... I got it, when I was working with Roger Daltrey from The Who, and he did a couple of songs, again, you know, hearing his voice just it may, amazed me. And, oh, I don't know, uh, those those are a few anyway. Yeah. One of the, the, the themes that I notice in your career, when we're talking even now for the, for the little bit of time we've spoken, 
is there's definitely a, a theme of loyalty and consistency. You talk about Bob Clear Mountain, who is one of my favorite engineers, producers, mixed people. I mean, anything that Bob has ever done to me stands the test of time and sounds great consistently, including your records. I mean, I, I mean, that guy, I don't know him at all, but as a fan, he's a hero of mine. When I see his credit on a record, I know it's sonically going to sound amazing. But whether it's Clear Mountain or your writing partnership with Jim Valance or you talked about you know, playing with Keith and, and the guys in your band, your manager, Bruce Allen, who's been with you almost since day one, you, you're, you have a great loyalty once you kind of lock in with somebody. You, you like to keep it that way, it seems. I'm trying to get rid of him, but I can't. <laughs> Do you want to put anybody on notice now, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, that also goes, that leads me into to thinking about right now, which is working with people like Mutt Lang, who, who I still write with today, and um, who, you know, is helping me with his new album. And, uh, oh, he's on my list to talk to you about for sure. <laughs> well, there you go. That's, there's a good uh, lead into it. Um, so, and, so much working with you on, on the record you're doing right now. Yes. Well, the first time you w- work with him, of course, was, was on, on waking up the neighbors. Right. And tell me about that because that would obviously a, a massively successful record, but a really pivotal moment for you, I would think in the sense that that was, the first time you broke away from the usual production team and even the writing team, because obviously uh, Mutt is uh, an accomplished writer and usually writes or co-writes with people as well. So talk about that decision to work with him and what that initial experience was like. Well, I'd actually uh, sort of pursued Mutt uh, prior to uh, waking up the neighbors um, and you know, because he was really in demand, it was hard to it was hard to find time. And when Mutt commits to working, you know, you're you're in for a couple of years. And so, it was just finding the time. And I had come to a point where I thought that this had really run its course, and I needed to change. I needed to change up um, somehow. To make to go to the you know to do something else it, it needed it needed a fresh start and uh, by chance um, I was sitting with um, with Bruce my manager and we were saying you know I, I really I, I really want to work with Mutt and he goes well just call him and see if he's free now I said well, what right now he goes yeah right now okay so I picked up the phone and said hey Mutt do you want to write some songs he said sure. <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I, I flew over to the UK and uh for the next two years we we uh we made Waking Up the Neighbors. And it was uh Keith and I often often uh talk about it as as uh, going through the University of Rock. Uh when you when you've worked with Mutt and you've spent that much time you know, working things out. Uh, you you really have, uh, if, in, and if you got through it and and you're still smiling, then you you've done it. You've got your degree in the University of Rock, <laughs> because truly working with Mutt was was uh, unlike anything I'd experienced before, and and that's not to say that that he's a taskmaster because he's not. What he is is he's he's trying to get the best out of you, and this is what I always find. Uh, interesting about producers 
is that really is a producer's job, you know, to get the best performance. Much like a director's performance in film is to get the best performance out of the actor, a producer's role in music is to get the best performance out of the artist. And so we spent uh, a long time talking about and working out ideas for what we were going to what what this album was going to be and you know his his vision um for me was and what's what's great about Mutt is he's he's a very accomplished musician and and a singer so every time I'd w- work on a song with him and and finish the vocal uh I would think wow he's he, he really got something out of me that I I didn't think was possible because when I when I work with Bob uh, on previous albums, I would do a couple of takes, or we'd use the live vocal, and that was the al- that was the take. We would just use that, you know. And me- I remember we did we would do vocal sessions in New York, and uh, you know we'd set up some mics and see what sounded the best, and then do a couple of takes, and <laughs> that was it. Um, but with Mutt, it was it was more about it wasn't even so much about um, uh, how can I just, how can I describe this, you know. It was always, can we make this better? Can 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 you just do that better? Can you make that better? Um, and so I'd always try. I'd always try to do it some some something else. And so we just go in and we try and 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 recently when when I I sent him a I sent him a chorus for a song, which is on my new album. He came back and he came back. He did a demo and he'd sort of done a vocal which. Uh, I knew he was thinking about me, you know, and he was thinking about my voice, and he sort of put things in there that would he knew that I would be able to to sing. And so having that understanding, having working with someone that's so musical and that gets your thing and, and knows how to pull the best things out of you, was uh, was the experience from waking up the neighbors onwards. And yeah, I mean. He, I look back on that record and and again I, I think wow that was was an, a a monumental experience because first of all it took 2 years to make and from the initial demos that I brought in to the finished mixes that we had it's a very very different record Well of course the other thing about working with Mutt Lang not only the production end of it but also songwriting because if I'm not mistaken he's credited as a co-writer on just about every song so that had oh, yeah. to be an adjustment for you as well because in the past you, you your guy was was jim and now for the first time you're really collaborating as a writer with somebody else yeah no it was it was really different and um we were working differently also because uh you, you, there, there, we had this thing called a a fair light and it was a, a kind of a computer system. This is all before computers were really um, really used. You know, there was there was I think drum machines that just sort of drum machines are only a couple of years old by the time we were working on this album. And so we'd have these this fair Fairchild no Fairlight this Fairlight thing, and we would just have have a a, a loop of a of a of a song uh, going on and. We would just try melodies on it until we got something that we liked. So we, so let's say you take one minute of a song, and he'd say, "Okay, just go out and sing something 
you know, um, and it doesn't matter what it is, just think, think up some melodies and all over these chord changes. And, and, um, oh, I've got a good story for you. Actually thinking about that, we'd, we'd recorded a song called Not Guilty when we kept the neighbors. It's one of the least known songs on the record. It's a real rocker. And I remember saying, hey, you know what? Just don't, just don't love the verse on this song. We need to write a new verse. And he went, yeah. And he put every single track in record, except the drums. And when it came to the verse, he hit record and wiped everything out until the, the chorus, and they came out for the chorus. So now we had all we had was a drum track and a chorus. <laughs> and he said, okay, let's write a new verse. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, we just spent like a month working on that thing, and it's gone. It was gone. So I don't even remember what that old verse was. So we sat down, and that, that was that was how you learned how to write write a new verse. <laughs> and that's how it takes you two years to make a record. <laughs> yeah, but also you know, get the best. You know, best idea wins. And right. the, the idea wasn't good enough, and he he and I both realized it. So yeah, let's just get rid of it, start again. But I don't know if I would have had the nuts just to sort of erase it all. I would have maybe started a whole new track or something, you know. But no, just get rid of it. Next. So this wasn't Pro Tools where it could have been saved somewhere on a no. chip or something? This was, no, it was, it was, was gone. It's on multi-track analog tape. <laughs> you, you obviously enjoyed the experience enough because you're working with them now, of course, on your, your your coming record. But then, of course, you do 18 Till I Die with them as well. So it's, it, you know, it it was a it was a fruitful pairing that's for sure and oh, yeah. i mean i i know the i know the def leppard guys all very very well they're regulars on on my shows over the decades and i mean they've you know their their stories are legendary with mutt he's a he's a very obviously a reclusive guy and somebody people don't hear or see about so hearing from the artists that have worked with him and getting these these insights is is always really fascinating to people yep yeah yeah he's uh He's a he's a great musician, and a great songwriter, and um, and he's a he's a great guy, and he's really really fun to work with. So, any, anyone that's worked with him will tell you the same thing, you know. And and the experience they had will always be similar. That he was able to take the best out of them and make it better. Brian, you know, I have a lot of conversations with artists from Canada and my listeners who are rock fans. And, and it's always interesting when you hear about these artists that were super big in Canada, never broke in America, or vice versa. Not the case at all with you, because obviously you broke huge in the U.S. and in Canada, but also I've always been amazed at your international following. Like all over the globe, you've worked and toured and still do and have hits in, in places of the around the world that uh, people might not expect what it, beyond the quality of the songs, what do you attribute that to? Is it just the work you put in touring and going to those territories? Because you really do have massive fans all over the planet, right? Uh, I, I, I think there's a couple out there. Um, <laughs> but beyond the U S and Canada, I mean, Europe, especially, right? There, there's a couple, I think there's one or two. Yeah. Um, I always, but, but you have to remember, I sort of grew up over there. Um, I grew up in Europe and when things started to kick off in States and Canada, I went to my management and said, look, we need to get, uh, some shows over in, in Europe and the UK. And, 
they'd never really done it. And so it was really alien. Um, but I, I pushed for it to happen. And it, it, it was it was really hard in the beginning because there was no structure, uh, really. It, it, you know, of course, bands toured over there, but they weren't about to tour like we were about to tour. And so I set it, set it upon myself um, quite early on to make sure that we had, you know, not just uh, a North American following. And that I always felt that music was music. And of course, all the bands that I loved the most came from the UK. So I, I and my parents are British. So I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go back to, to England and I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to, my grandparents to hear my songs on the radio, you know, and it didn't happen initially. Um, <laughs> there's quite a few stories about that, maybe for another, for another, uh, Serious with you, Eddie, but um, it, eventually it, it, it broke, um, and it broke with Run to You, and it broke with um, my supporting Tina Turner uh, after after Reckless had come out, and basically Reckless came out in Europe and had nothing had happened with it. It, it basically died a death, and we started touring with Tina, and th- things started to change, and. So I'm grateful to Tina because she gave me the, you know, the opportunity to get my music to to my European friends now uh, that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't done that tour. It just changed everything. Um, it changed record company perception. It changed agent perception. It changed management perception, and it sort of vindicated everything I thought about. You know, if if we could just get a break. And you know, and and to be fair, with all with all things to, to do with musicians, even today, it's all about having a break. You know, who's going to give you a break? And so we're, we're lucky that we were in the right place at the right time. What's interesting about that is you're saying that touring with Tina was what did it for you there more so than recording with her with its only love, because you're saying Reckless didn't do anything there, right? Correct. So it, it came. It, 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 did it its only love end up getting play? Did you, because yeah. of the success of the tour? Did it, did they circle back to a track like that there? Well, it circled back, but you know the, the way things are. When a song gets released, it doesn't get re-released. Um, and so, anything I had released prior to that, you know, didn't get a shot. Really, Brunch, you got a bit of airplay, and then it, I think it got up to number eleven on the chart there. And then anything. After that, I think Tina, Tina and I did did chart on the uh, uh, in the on the UK charts, but it was never a huge hit. What it was, it became a big live event, and and on that tour, of course, you, I, you can't I can't even begin to explain to you how exciting it was to go up and sing with her every night. Um, we did it. We did a uh, a film one night in Birmingham. And on the show was uh, with David Bowie and and myself, and we were all performing with her. And then we did a live video. That that show, I think, really changed a lot for us. And but it was like everything was inching inching forward. It was everything was just moving forward. You could feel momentum again. You know, we 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 didn't 
we didn't know what was going to happen the next day, what what what, what was going to change, and it was all to do with the tour, and and having a record that was you know uh, exciting for people to listen to. Speaking of making a film, uh, you, of course, were the bulk of your career was in the heyday of MTV when MTV was the most powerful. Uh, I, you know, I tell younger people all the time and they, you know, they have a hard time understanding this. But I was like, no, you don't understand. Getting your video played on MTV was more powerful than at one point than 100 radio stations in America playing it. It was the thing. And you dominated in that regard with a, a string of videos for the hits you've had. Making those videos, looking back on that, were, did you did you embrace and were you into making videos or did you view it as a necessary evil at the time? Oh, I always embraced it. But, you know, back then you didn't really know what, what it was going to amount to, really, because uh, it was all very early days. You know, people were – MTV was only available on cable. It wasn't a, a regular TV thing, so only people that had cable could get MTV – and but we made the right couple of videos and and it helped and again if we're looking at that time period um which is prior to reckless that's cuz like a knife but again the touring was a big deal we we were on tour a lot during that year i don't think i went home that year hmm. after cuz like a knife came out i just didn't i just didn't go home i just stayed out on tour the whole time and everybody else with me. <laughs> so we and and we traveled the world. We we went out and we we went and did you know early shows in the UK, early shows in Australia, um, Japan, and uh, we we set the base for everything was kind of like setting up the everything back then was kind of like setting up the the moment for delivering the right record. Are you, are you going to deliver the right record? Hope so, and 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 that's what Reckless was. Reckless has happened to be the right record at the right time. But everything we've done prior to that was sort of opening doors, and you know, or maybe let's say kicking down doors. How did you hold up uh, a workload like that at that time? I mean, with you uh -oh. and I, uh, you, yeah, but yeah, I could be wrong, but there's a lot of a lot of artists that I, that obviously talk about the the drain of it the strain of it they resort to alcohol drugs there's all these issues and abuses that come into play at that time never heard any of that from you about your career it, whether maybe it was happening and we didn't know about it but it, it you never seemed to be that guy so you just you just sailed with it you were good with it you didn't have burnout or anything like that working that hard no i mean i was really uh, excited about it i was just thinking you know, it's it's all pinching yourself moments, like watching these things, watching your songs develop, and 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 watching uh, the shows fill up. I don't know. It was just it was really an exciting time. I didn't really, I didn't wasn't really interested in getting getting wasted. It wasn't. You know, I watched a lot of people do it and other bands doing it, and I just thought, ugh, ugh, no thanks. I'd rather be. I'd rather be. I'd rather keep my voice in the night. You know. Yeah. Well, obviously that pays off in spades as you get older, uh, for sure. One last thing on videos. Do you have a favorite of the ones you've made? Um. Well, I'll, I'll say uh, cuts like a knife. Maybe. Um, 
I like it because we had, uh, you know, it was a slightly odd video, um, and it was really the it was really the uh, the, the the video that sort of MTV embraced really early on. I mean, we had a Hispanic girl in our video, and you know, while everybody else had blondes and big hair and uh, you know other attributes, our our girl was you know <laughs> was uh, Hispanic and brown-eyed and beautiful, and you know, I liked the idea of having something that was more exotic um, to everybody else. And in fact, the other day, someone mentioned to me, she was, you know, she was an Indian girl, said to me, you know, I was I was so amazed to see that you'd actually done that because everybody else wasn't doing that. Mm. And I, I thought, wow, isn't that amazing someone actually acknowledges it, you know, but that was then. And, and MTV embraced it, too. So um, I'll, I'll I'll go with that one. Yeah, and obviously an incredible song. The only thing I despise about Cuts Like a Knife is when I hear it and I hear the edit because <laughs> I I despise edits and it's like what man edit? you couldn't you couldn't have just left it at four fifty five or whatever the what album edit? version is what you don't edit? you didn't know there's edits in there no <laughs> the, the radio edit. version of the song come on <laughs> no I don't know the edit are you serious no oh my god know. well I don't, there, know. don't even send it don't send it to me. I won't, but there are, you know, you know better than anybody that labels take initiative to cut a song back that's almost five minutes to maybe four to make it, you know, more radio friendly. To make it three, (laughs) to to get it under two and a half. The funniest ones I see is when they're like 310 on the album version and then they send one that's 259, the radio edit. I'm like, (laughs) I I never play them. I hate them. I'm like, what's the point? What's who's 10 seconds? Who's getting killed on the 10 seconds? But even if I'm in a supermarket, I'm like, no, don't be the edit. (laughs) (laughs) The worst one is. Yeah, the worst one is Slow Ride by Foghat. That was just like seven minutes and the whole slide guitar part is gone in the supermarket <laughs> version. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but if you heard that song, even if you heard the first riff of that song, you'd still want to go see the band live. Yeah, that's true. That's true, too. Hey, I want to ask you about, uh, in the few minutes I have left, something you're doing now that I saw online that's really really cool for your fans something called a vintage playlist where you're having people hit you with obscure songs from your catalog and you're actually going into the studio and redoing them for them on youtube right yeah what i do is i take the band track the original band track from whatever year it is and i sing and i sing it live that is so cool and it's all non-hits it's all like the stuff fans want to hear you do that's not normally in the live set right yeah that, pretty much i mean it's it's on youtube and um i did it exclusively for youtube i might do some more i've, I've done about 20 i think and uh it's exciting it was one of those things i was doing while i was in covid lockdown so just something to keep my voice going and so i would i would you know go through all the requests that came in. A lot of the requests were coming in from Instagram because I've got an Instagram page. And so I would just say, you know, what song you want to hear next? And then they'd say, they'd give me a list of songs. And so I would go and just try and see which one, you know, that what what would work best that day. <laughs> well, it's a really cool thing, though, because the eternal battle is, as I'm sure you know, the hardcore fans like, you know, I'd love to come, you know, if I came see, I'd love to hear you do, I don't know, Take Me Back or something, which I love. 
but you you have you have so many hits you've got to do the hits to make the masses happy but there's always those deep album tracks that the hardcore faithful love so it's kind of a way to pacify them a little bit to say okay i might not be able to put it into my traditional live set but here's a, a new version of it just for you i thought it was a great idea well, thanks. Maybe I'll do a version of Not Guilty. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, put put my request in for Take Me Back. I'd love to hear that okay, one Okay, Take done. Me Back. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can get that. But it won't be right away, because I'll, I'll I'm in the middle of this right now. But at some point, I'll get, I'll, I'll get that. I'll let you know when I do it, too. Uh, I would love to love to hear that one done live. And and tell the audience a little bit about the Brian Adams Foundation and what your, some of your initiatives there currently. Well, currently, it's all kind of closed down because of the COVID. But, I mean, what we've done in the last uh, couple, few years prior to it was uh, mostly to do with kids' playgrounds. I was going into um, schools that were uh, state schools in, in uh, around my area where I was living that uh, had been neglected and just re- having their playgrounds redone so that the kids could be, you know, resurfacing the playgrounds and, and putting in places for kids to climb and, that kind of stuff. Just it was all it was all to do with redoing. We did, I think we did about two or three of them, and so and and, the, and prior to that, it was there's a the, there's a number of different things we were focusing on from homelessness to um, uh, I did a book of photographs of wounded veterans and so there's there's a bunch of different things. People can find out more about that on your website and. Um... You know, you touched on it, uh, obviously, the work with Tina Turner, uh, you sang with Pavarotti. I mean, it's endless, the people you've collaborated with in, in, in some way or worked with that are fans of yours, and I'm sure vice versa. Who's left? Who's on the Who's on the Brian Adams hit list of the, the number one person you haven't worked with or done anything with that you'd love to? Um, well, I, I like a lot of the new singers, and um, I'd love to try – working with some of some of the new singers. I sang with Taylor Swift uh year before last live. That was really fun. She did an incredible job of Summer 69. And you can probably find that on YouTube somewhere. And so that was interesting and I'd like to work with I don't know maybe Sam Smith or um Chris Martin. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Well, there's there's plenty of time. Obviously, once things get back to normal, hopefully, uh, you know, you'll be able to do some of that stuff. And then then the final thing, um, playing guitar versus singing. What's your preference? Well, you know, I started out as a guitar player that wanted to be a drummer um, that ended up being a singer uh, that ended up being a bass player that could play a bit of piano. <laughs> You know, um, I think if, uh, and I suppose given my druthers, I'd probably go with uh, the voice because I'm not a great guitar player. I'm, I'm a I'm a decent rhythm guitar player, and but I think I'm, I might be a better singer than I am a guitarist. Well, what's incredible about that is we all know as people age, many people struggle with their voice vocally. To my ears, especially watching these YouTube videos of you redoing these songs, it sounds like you've got, you know, you've lost nothing. Do you feel like, like that vocally? Do you feel like you, you've got everything you had when you were a kid? I, th- I think so. I think my voice has held out pretty well. I I, uh, I did a tour a few years ago 
an album to accompany it, which was called Bare Bones, where I went out with my piano player, Gary Brighton, and we traveled the world, just the two of us as a duo, and performed all the songs that you're talking about uh, today, and we just did them acoustically. And during that time, I think my voice got a lot better because I, I suddenly realized I wasn't hiding behind a band and that I had to sort of carry it just by myself, had to be in tune, had to be had to have some stories. They better be a little bit funny, and uh, you better keep on your game. And so I think after that, I, I, I got better. I, I really think I did. It's just like training, you know, like like an athlete. If you if you don't train, you lose something. Um, you you lose something in in your uh, you know your speed or something, and to be able to connect to an idea and and to. I mean, if you watched the I watched that recently. I watched that uh, show on Netflix called Drive to Survive about Formula One. Uh, have you watched that? No, I haven't. It's pretty cool. It's and it's all about young young drivers and how they can drive these these Formula One cars at 300 miles an hour, and how their reflexes are so so tuned to how much you ha- you have to be. It's not just about it's not just about your your uh, physical, but it's your mental thing and how concentrated and how focused you have to be. And I think the same thing applies to musicianship and and how you you know you everything how you take care of yourself and how you take care of your 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 mental health and your physical health you know helps you forward move forward you know to be able to connect um and, and so so much about keeping your voice in shape is is just it's a physical thing it's about training so if you're not doing it you're not training you you're going to it's going to suffer um in some ways. So I, I try, that's why the YouTube thing, I try to keep my voice in shape. Yeah. Well, look, I have a great appreciation. Even if, even if the artists I love lose a little bit off their voice as they get older, I'd rather have that than the trend in music, which I am a vocal opponent of, that makes me insane. And that is artists relying on electronics and lip syncing and singing, uh, singing to tracks. Uh, that, that just to me as a rock fan is unbelievably offensive when I find <laughs> out about it. So I'll take, I'll take somebody at 50% as long as it's actually live than, uh, you know, somebody singing to a computer. There's just nothing worse than that to me. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that goes back to the beginning of time. I mean, you know, there's been TV shows going back to the Dick Clark times where kids were going out on TV and singing to a tape. So that you can't really knock it. Yeah, but I'm talking about on a live show, not a not oh, a TV okay. performance. Oh, I'm talking that, about right. going to pay a hundred bucks to go see somebody live, and I'm not. Yeah, I know the TV thing. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, look, I could I could talk to you forever, man. I I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, uh, anytime you have anything to promote, you want to come on, talk about anything. Um, you know, I'm 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 here. I'd be honored to have you, and I, I'll let you get back to making your. Your next masterpiece there. I can't wait to hear it. Well, the album 15. Album 15 and Mutt Lang back in the picture. Uh, that should be real interesting as well. Yeah, it's going to be a good one, man. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. And thanks to all your team. Yep. And we got to thank our buddy Paul Sedotti for uh, 
connecting us here. I appreciate the uh, yeah, you know his hookup, cool. our mutual friend. Speaking yeah. of your time jamming with Taylor, so he put us together. So I thank him as well. Um, be well there, Brian. Thank you so much for the time again. I really appreciate it. All the best. You be too. Safe. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and thank you to Brian Adams for the time. Just so great to have a great artist like that just kicking back, telling some stories, sharing some insights about his remarkable career, and that was a really, really fun chat. Thank you guys for listening. Wherever, whenever, and however you do it, spread the word. Keep getting the word out about the podcast, and uh, keep subscribing and listening each and every week. Thanks to Katie Irizarry, as always, for producing it. And again, at Eddie Trunk, especially Twitter and Instagram, where I'm most active on social media. Back next Thursday for another all-new episode, free as always, podcast1.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Have a great week, everybody. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.